Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Welcome to the Banyan Books Podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. And we have a very special guest today. I'm really honored that we've got her here with us, Michelle Good. Michelle Good is of Cree ancestry and a descendant of the Battle River Cree and a member of the Red Pheasant Cree Nation. She has worked with Indigenous organizations since she was a teenager and at 40 decided to approach that work in a different way, obtaining her law degree from UBC at age 43. She's practiced law in the public and private sector since then, primarily advocating for residential school survivors. In 2014, she graduated from UBC with a Master of Fine Arts degree in creative writing while still practicing law and managing her own law firm. This was where her first novel, Five Little Indians, the subject of our discussion today, first started taking shape. Her poems, short stories, and essays have been published in magazines and anthologies across Canada, and her poetry was included on two lists of the best Canadian poetry in 2016 and 2017. Today, Michelle Good again is with us talking about her book. Here it is, Five Little Indians, which was published in April 2022 and won the HarperCollins UBC Best New Fiction Prize. Since then, the book has continued to build momentum and gain recognition. Most recently, the book was the winner of CBC's Canada Reads for 2022. It has received many other honors and awards, including the 2020 Governor General's Award for English Language Fiction, the Amazon Canada First Novel Award, and the Kobo Emerging Writer Prize for Literary Fiction. A little bit about the book. Five Little Indians traces the stories of five Indigenous youth taken from their families when they are very small and sent to a remote church-run residential school. Kenny, Lucy, Clara, Howie, and Maisie are barely out of childhood when they are finally released after years of detention. Alone and without any skills, support, or families, the teens find their way to the seedy and foreign world of downtown Eastside Vancouver where they cling together, striving to find a place of safety and belonging in a world that doesn't want them. The paths of the five friends cross and crisscross over the decades as they struggle to overcome or at least forget the trauma they endured during their years at the mission. With compassion and insight, Five Little Indians chronicles the desperate quest of these residential school survivors to come to terms with their past 
and ultimately find a way forward. It's a really heartbreaking, moving, and ultimately an uplifting and hopeful book as well. I'll have to say I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about our guest today, you can visit her website, which is michellegood.ca. So Banyan community, please join me in a very warm welcome for Michelle Good. Michelle, thanks for being here. Well, it, it's my pleasure. As I was saying a bit earlier, I, I really love speaking with readers. I mean, aside from the fact that it's my book they're reading, um, I find that people that are dedicated to reading are thinking people, and it's, it's a rewarding experience. Beautiful. Now, you, when the Spurs book first was taking form and came out, you won the HarperCollins UBC Prize for New Fiction in 2018, I believe it was. Yes. And it was published in 2020. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And now it's four years later, and this book, Five Little Indians, it's still building momentum, having just won Canada Reads 2022. I'm just wondering, do you think you tapped into some kind of a readiness or a need in the collective psyche to finally hear and bear witness to the realities of colonialism in residential schools? Well, I, I think there, there is a, a kind of readiness, but I think that this book is quite different from many of the other books that have been written about residential schools. Um, We've seen a lot of memoir um, and, you know, some novels, like we have Indian Horse from, from Richard Wagamese. Um, and then there's, of course, the TRC report, there's nonfiction work, there's academic work. But until this book came out, there really wasn't anything in the fiction world um, that focused on what happened next, that focused on what happened after the kids left the school. And that really was my intent. You know, I laid a foundation of their time in the school, but my intent was to talk about what a struggle it was to achieve even a modest life, carrying that burden, that tremendous burden of psychological injury. And I think that was quite unique. And I think it was a, it was a shocking thing. And I, when I sat down to write it, I sat down to write it because I was pissed off, pardon me. Um, Please. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in response to this horrible question that you hear over and over and over, why can't they just get over it? And so I wanted to answer that question. I wanted to say this is why, because this trauma has been woven into the souls of small children that and marks them and is a determinant in the rest of their lives. That's why. Um, and so I thought there's no better way of doing that than through really what is a character study of each of these characters and an exploration of the different kinds of trauma and the different responses to trauma that you will see in survivors. Yes, and that, that's one of the things that was so beautiful about the book is how the, each of the characters embodies a different response, a different way of dealing with the, the pain they're still carrying with them. What was it like for you to, to, did you do a lot of research into trauma or was it just based on your own experience of, with human beings, uh, you know, to form these different responses in the characters? Well, you know, when I was practicing law and I was um, representing survivors and so on, I read literally hundreds of psychological assessments as part of the legal proceeding. And, um, and I learned a tremendous amount about trauma and about responses to trauma. Um, I just learned it 
But not only that, I mean, this is my lived experience. It's not something that I have to research. And I mean, myself, I didn't go to residential school, but I was scooped and I was in the foster care system for uh, from the time I was 13 till I was 18. And a lot of the things they experienced, I experienced as well in terms of, you know, you just, you reach that magical age of 18 and you're just out. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you have nothing, no job, nothing. You're just out, um, you know, like Lucy, you know, being just tossed out of the school and thank God she had a friend, you know. Um, so, and also having started working with Indigenous organizations as young as I was, right in the 70s, um, the same time that the, the novel takes place or part of the time frame that the novel takes place, virtually everybody that I was working with was a survivor. And so I observed all of that kind of, uh, you know, the way survivors walk in the world through my entire long career working with Indigenous groups and organizations. And of course, my mother's experience. I mean, she was a survivor. She was in residential school at, you know, a terrible, terrible time. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, I wanted to ask you in the acknowledgements at the back of the book, first you give thanks to your father, his name is William Stanley Stiff, right? Yes. Yeah. And for giving you, a, you thank him for giving you a fascination for language, a drive to understand the power of words and a love of reading. Yes. And that's then about, that's your dad. Yeah. <laughs> And then about your mother, you say, may this be a tribute to my mother, Martha Eliza Sunias Stiff, who lived through the hell of one of these schools. Her yeah. tenacity taught me courage. Her stories echo here. And they do. Um, the story of Lily is true. Lily, the little girl who hemorrhages to death from tuberculosis. Um, Lily went to the school my mother went to, and my mother watched her hemorrhage to death on the playground at that school. And um, when you do a little bit of research, I, I had contemplated doing a, um, an LLM, a master's in law, and did a bunch of research about, you know, the beginnings of the schools and so on. Then I decided, eh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but, you know, if it's, and that was when doing this kind of research was very uh, labor intensive in terms of actually going to the libraries, the archives, you know, sifting through the dusty bits and bites, so to speak. Um, now all of this is so easily accessible online. Um, but uh, Duncan Campbell Scott, who was the superintendent of Indian Affairs in the early uh, 20th century, when he was told by his chief medical officer that upwards of 50% of kids were dying in these schools um, because of tuberculosis, his response was that, um, I can almost quote it exactly, so this is a kind of exact but not quote. Um, he said, while it's true that the children die in the schools much easier than they do in their villages, that in and of itself is not enough for a change in our policy. I, uh, we will not stop until there is not one Indian that hasn't been absorbed into the body politic and there is no Indian problem and no Indian department. I need, I want a final solution. And it's shocking that it was Canada, it was a Canadian official who first coined the term final solution, well before Hitler. Yeah. 
it's shocking and horrendous really yeah. um yeah yeah worth giving a moment to that statement actually yeah and you know my mother um because these schools sort of went under many names you know they went under mission schools residential schools indian schools indian boarding schools and I grew up in a non-Indigenous community as my mother lost her status when she married my non-Indigenous father. And, uh, you know, so she, I would occasionally hear her say something about boarding school. And, you know, I had this sort of Nancy Drew context of boarding school, like <laughs> something in France or Switzerland, you know, some upscale kind of thing, right? And then she told me the story about Lily. And I, I just... I, I was in this state of shock for a long time, um, thinking about how could that possibly be? How could that happen to my mother, you know? And and so, you know, she she told me some stories. She didn't talk about it much because who would want to, you know, talk about the very worst things that happened in their in their lives? But, um, you know, it was a terrible, terrible, terrible time. Just awful. One of the themes that is is um, brought forward in the book through the character Kendra is intergenerational trauma and this idea of, you know, the next generation having not experienced residential school, trying to understand their parents' experience and what they went through. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a bit to this, this issue of intergenerational trauma and how even though the residential schools are now closed, it's very much still alive and real? Well, you know, you, you make an interesting point where you talk about the children of survivors. And I have a somewhat different take on intergenerational trauma. Um, people see it in this very linear way. I don't, I, I see it as being something much more circular and a trauma that started with the parents and grandparents, aunties and uncles of the children that were taken away. They were traumatized first. Right, when that child was taken away. I mean, imagine all you parents out there, imagine the RCMP and the church representative coming to your door, taking your child and telling you that if you resist, you will be fined or you will be thrown in jail. And imagine the trauma of the parent, just completely made helpless when it comes to what happens to their child. And so, and the grandparents who are, traumatized by the fact that they are no longer able to convey necessary uh, social and cultural information to prepare that child for the place in the community. And then there is the, the kind of intergenerational trauma that you speak of, of the, the children of survivors and the grandchildren of survivors. And that, you know, to me is a very interesting thing because, you know, we all know that observational learning is a critical um, way that children learn and what they're observing in their parents is trauma responses right their parents are responding the way a traumatized person would respond and so these children are learning that that's the appropriate response to a given situation plus they you know there is anxiety and fear created when your parent is losing it for reasons that they don't necessarily understand either the parents or the children because, you know, unless you've had a therapeutic intervention after that kind of trauma, you know, you're going to struggle. You are going to struggle. 
so yeah, that's the way I see intergenerational trauma. That's a really interesting um, reframe for me to understand it in that way that the multiple generations that were impacted all at once. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, you, I think this book was, was published just before um, the unearthing of the, the children's bodies in Kamloops, is that right? Yeah, this, this book came out April 14th, the day I shall never forget. Um, 2020, and it was August um, 2020 that the unmarked graves were found. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of media and, uh, you know, people reaching out to me for an interview about, you know, these kinds of things. <laughs> and, you know, and I had to just say, we've known this forever. Yeah. You know, we, we have known this forever and we have prevailed upon the authorities, prevailed upon government to, um, you know, to assist us in you know, being able to repatriate these children and, and send them home. In fact, in 2015, when the second, I think it was the second volume of the TRC um, came out, there was an entire section of the TRC that was, you know, unmarked graves and burial sites. And it was a, a roadmap that was given by the TRC to the federal government about how they could deal with this issue. Um, they asked for a million and a half dollars to begin this work and the government said no. Really? Yeah. It's almost nothing in terms of the government. Well, yeah, it's peanuts. It's pocket change in terms of the government, right? And uh, no, they just said no. And so, you know, once again, it has been, you know, a burden placed on our shoulders to find our own dead, you know, and to find a way to properly send those babies home. And in, you know, and it was, you know, Kamloops is a fairly uh, prosperous band. And so, you know, they had uh, the necessary resources for, you know, the technological equipment and expertise that was needed to do this search. But not every band has that kind of resources to be able to do that. You know, so that was 2015 that this was, you know, um, being raised and being, you know, Ah, being pressed in terms of seeking assistance to help people resolve this and you know <laughs> yeah no we don't care we don't care that the babies are dead and we don't care that they never got to go home yeah and you know in one of those uh interviews um i can't remember who it was but a journalist journalist asked me what can we do and i said keep it alive don't let it fall off you know the press the, the news don't let it fall out of the news a week later it had fallen out of the news yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. and every now and again you get another story about another community that is found you know i think we're over ten thousand now ten thousand graves right uh, tell ten thousand children i mean not graves yeah and it's silent it's silent out there shameful Yes. Yeah. This this idea of the need for some kind of sustained attention span from you were talking about media, but also from governments and and just the general population. Mm -hmm. What what do you say about that? Is do you have idea like how do we how do how do we try and keep people's attention on these issues? 
well, people have to decide that it's important enough for them to pay attention to. I, you know, I can't make you, I can't, uh, you know, I can influence you with my work and with my words, but, you know, people have to be willing to be motivated enough inside themselves to raise their voices. And, you know, I, I use this as an example quite often when I'm, when I'm speaking that, you know, we are the smallest percentage, we're a tiny percentage of the population in Canada, and we suffer, we are the most incarcerated, the most likely to commit suicide, the most apprehended, the most awful, every awful statistic, we are the most, okay? Yet, we were able to organize and change the constitution. We did that, okay? So if we, the disempowered, okay, the, you know, discriminated against the oppressed, if we can do that, imagine what you guys could do if you organized, if your heart was truly in it. Imagine what you could do, what you could influence with your, you know, privilege. And I don't say privilege in a, you know, nasty, vitriolic way at all, you know, but you, you are reality. It's a reality. It's a reality, right? Imagine what you could do and please do it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Thank you for that, because one of the things I wanted to ask you was this issue around, you know, white or non-Indigenous, mostly white kind of colonial guilt. Mm. You know, there's this, I think for most people, whether it's acknowledged or not, there's this underlying shame and guilt around what our ancestors have done and the privilege that we now enjoy on stolen land, basically. Yeah. Um, so what you just said pretty much answers that question. Yeah. How to you know, there's no, I mean, everybody that's living or most people that are living today had nothing to do with this. And, you know, and I, I'm really quick to say that because I'm not here to, um, you know, to, to scatter blame and, and, you know, bad feelings. That's not my objective in the world. Um, but people need to understand that they're wealth. They're, the wealth of this country has, it exists because of what was taken from us. And so in that sense, even if you had no hand in the terrible things that were done, you are still reaping the benefits that arose because of those things. And so instead of guilt and shame, how about a sense of responsibility, a sense of a debt owed to Indigenous people? And, you know, raise your voice. You can be very powerful, you know, in numbers, organize. If it, if it means something to you more, more than words, you know, then let's see it. Right. A call to action. Yes, ma'am. I mean, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know these days. <laughs> traveling a lot and I'm tired <laughs> oh wow that was fun <laughs> oh yeah an honest slip of the tongue <laughs> you know um, a friend of mine who I won't name but who's uh, an elder in the Seashell Nation here close mm -hmm. to where I live um, has talked to me about his experiences as a, as a day student at residential school and you know I've asked him you know and it seems to be pretty consistent when I talk to leaders in Indigenous communities that what is needed from non-Indigenous folks is allyship, not pity, not guilt, but allyship. What does that look like? What do you, what do you have to say about that? 
Yeah, I see you have something. <laughs> so, um, Dr. Peter Bryce, Peter Henderson Bryce, I think that some people are familiar with him. He was the chief medical officer of the Department of Indian Affairs, and he was the guy that did a big report about the number of kids that were dying because of TB in the schools. And he was, he said, you know, even in war, you don't see these death rates. It's extraordinary. And he gave his report to Duncan Campbell Scott, who promptly fired him. And uh, he then wrote, some of you might be familiar with a book called A National Crime. Um, Dr. Bryce wrote a long essay called A National Crime, or no, something like that. But anyway, that's where the title came from, A National Crime. And, you know, he, he coined a phrase where he said, it is shameful how we are treating our allies, okay? And when you think of allies, I want people to think about the fact that the, the geography of North America, the political and social geography of North America was in effect um, created by the allyship of indigenous people. The indigenous people were military allies to the French and the English and their participation in that was influential in how, you know, where the American line was, you know, the French, the role of the French and the English, who won out eventually, that was largely due to, or, you know, significantly due to, um, to the Indigenous allies. So when I hear people talking about allyship, that's what I want them to think about. Be allies like we were allies, where we were prepared to lay our lives down for our allies. You know, it has to be much more than this woke, I love Indians thing, okay? It has to be an activism. It has to be, um, you know, something that is actually going to catch people's attention beyond a conversation about a book or a story or how bad we all feel about it. Uh, it needs to be tangible, effective, organized. And this kind of action, do you suggest it should be working in collaboration with Indigenous communities, not a, not a colonial or white person group that's just ice operating on their own? Well, I mean, they can work on their own if they want to. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't think that there's anything mysterious about what needs to happen um, in terms of reconciliation, which is a word I tend to spend with a spell with a W. <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think, you know, how, how many times do we have to say, you know, we, we are impoverished, we need resources, give us some of the land back, right? And, and people just need to stand up and say that with us, for us, um, you know, and I mean, there's, there was this group, I don't know if it still exists, it was, uh, started up in the societies, uh, the societies, gosh, I'm tired, in the 60s, um, and it was called the Canadian Association in Support of Native People. And that's what that little organization did, is they lobbied on behalf of Indigenous groups. So, and they, they did have a, you know, a good working relationship with various Indigenous groups and so on. But, you know, I think everybody, you don't need to have an association with an Indigenous person or a group to say the way Indigenous people are treated in Canada is unacceptable. 
anybody can say that. You don't need any further input, right, to be able to articulate that. Um, and and I wish people would. You know, I mean, where else in the world, in a you know first world country, is there you know a meaningful segment of the population that doesn't have clean drinking water, right? As basic as that, you know, I mean, even if everybody in Canada got behind the water issue, it would be huge. It would be just huge. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, and I, I say this too, that you don't need so much input from us. Everybody knows. Everybody knows what's going on here, right? Um, or they should. And if they don't, they should educate themselves. Educate <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, we are still suffering so significantly from the impacts of colonialism and we need to be putting our work inward you know we need to be focusing our attention on you know strengthening our communities redeveloping our economies whether they're a hybrid you know modern day economy with a traditional economy or whatever but we we need to be focusing on on strengthening our own communities and the and the amount of time that I spend and that other people spend educating non-Indigenous people is better spent at home. It's better spent invested in our own communities. Everybody can pick up a book, everybody can go to the archives, everybody can learn what happened um, and, and how it still resonates today. And then you just got to raise your voice, fix it. That's all you got to say. Fix it. Right, right. <laughs> it's pretty, it actually is pretty simple, isn't it? I mean, the way you're saying it, it, it's it's simple. Yeah, and, you know, we don't need to complicate it. And, you know, and when I say that, I, I mean, I, I don't mean to dismiss, um, you know, the positions that Indigenous people have taken is that you can't speak for us. But I'm not asking you to speak for us. I'm ask, asking for you to speak on our behalf, which is different. I'm asking you to to raise your indignation, to to raise your voice in indignation about how Canada treats Indigenous peoples. Yeah, I guess the image that comes to mind for me is if there's you know a group of bullies on the playground, mm -hmm. and then you know one or two other kids stand up for the victims to that bullying. It's yeah. it's kind of like that, hey. Eh? Similar kind of thing, absolutely. Yeah. Michelle, I, I uh, listened to your interview with Christian Allaire in the lead oh. up to Canada Reads. It was really nice. And yeah. in that, I wrote down a quote. You said, and I've heard this said in other terms before, you said, without truth, there can be no reconciliation. Without truth, there can be no reconciliation. What's the truth that you really wanted readers to understand through this fantastic book, Five Little Indians? Well, as I said, you know, the... the the answer to that question, why can't they just get over it? I really wanted people to understand that this was widespread abuse, traumatic abuse that affected individual people that tortured them psychologically and left them with such injury over such a period of time and um, that it doesn't go away. It doesn't just go away. And I, you know, I, I think about the, you know, something like 150,000 kids that, that went through this system. And I wonder how many of them had access to a psychologist? Not many. You know, how many have been able to 
have a, a, a therapeutic intervention to help them heal and to help them put that abuse in a proper context. Not many, not many. And, you know, so I just, you know, I see the walking wounded and I just really, really, really wanted to, um, I guess, inspire a deeper level of understanding and compassion um, to not judge people who are struggling uh, as a result. And people that are traumatized are more likely to have issues with addiction, for example, um, more likely to have issues with rage and with, you know, violence that can be associated with rage. And you know, less likely to have a successful relationship. You know, these are these are the impacts of trauma and the impacts. It's like putting these little time bombs into our communities when kids were able to get home, if they were able to get home. Um, you know, where the trauma, the seeds of trauma just continue to germinate. And yeah, so I wanted people to understand, you know, that, you know, um, you know, more and more people are understanding the kinds of things that happened in the school. And I thought it's just time that they understand what happened once the kids left the school. Yeah. One of the themes in the book is, is how the abuse of residential schools leaves the characters feeling as though they're not good enough or worthy enough of real love and care. Yeah. And we see it particularly playing out in, in their intimate relationships. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about this theme. Yeah, well, it's true. Um, you know, one of the one of the real impacts of um, childhood abuse is that you believe that you were worthy of that abuse, and so therefore not worthy of love or affection or you know healthy relationships or any of those kinds of things. But you know, we have Maisie, who is an extreme example of this, where she she ends up well, she has to keep revisiting, which is another another. Um, common symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder is uh, where in the absence of a therapeutic intervention, these kids revisit the trauma. Um, it's a compulsive thing to revisit that kind of trauma in this sort of desperate but, you know, uninformed way of trying to resolve it, of trying to figure it out, of trying to make it go away. So we have that Maisie, but we also have it in poor old Kenny. Oh, I love Kenny, yeah. you know, and, yeah. you know, and what I wanted to convey with Kenny, and I, I really hope that it came through, um, is that he was, he saw his experience at the school as life and death. He was running for his life when he was running again and again until he finally succeeds. And, and then he could never stop running, right? For the rest of his life, he was running. And, and he was so fortunate to have Lucy because she understood and ultimately was able to accept that that would likely never stop and that they would have to, you know, make a relationship that was a little different than the norm, you know. Um, but yeah, um, those things, they just uh, continue to haunt them forever and ever and ever. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as, as heartbreaking as this novel is, I mean, ultimately it is a hopeful story and it paints a picture of really of the resilience of the Indigenous spirit and the Indigenous people. 
can you share your outlook on this on this resilience and strength michelle well you know here we are <laughs> you know like in spite of everything that's been done to us like the intentional slaughter of the buffalo which for us plains people that was all that was our food clothing and shelter the destruction of our economy the um you know criminalization of our spirituality and you know the the banning of the potlatch on the coast and the banning of the sundance in the prairies um the, the wholesale theft of our children. And here we are. <laughs> We're still here. I was at an event on uh, Gabriola Island a, a while ago, and uh, there was an elder from one of the local communities who came in and, and spoke in her language. And whenever I hear that, it almost makes me cry um, because of because that, right? Children had needles stuck through their tongues by uh, people that worked at the schools if they spoke their own language. When my mother went to uh, residential school, she didn't speak a word of English. And you were hit, you were beat, you were punished if you spoke your own language. So basically she couldn't speak, she couldn't say anything um, without you know, expecting to be hurt. But in spite of all of that, here we are, we're here. And so that's, I mean, if you want to think about strength, how, <laughs> you know, we're, we're Herculean, <laughs> you know, to survive, not only to survive, but to thrive. And we're in a position now where languages are being, you know, reinvigorated and, you know, our traditions have been, you know, decriminalized, right? And, uh, you know, and we are, we are coming to a point of thriving again. Um, so, you know, how tough are we? Yeah, no kidding. And, you know, we had uh, Chief Clarence Louie on the program a couple of months ago. And one of the one of the things he talks about in his book, Res Rules, is um, the, the Indigenous humor. And it, <laughs> and, it, and it comes through, to me, it comes through in little bits and pieces in this book, too, that how laughter carries the characters through. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, you know, I mean, we're a funny people to begin with. <laughs> well, and I, I'm, I'm serious about that. Like, I don't know if any of you have heard of Wisakichak. He's trickster in the Cree tradition. He's trickster and responsible for um, creation. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, there are traditional stories that are like based on the, you know, what is the importance of a fart? <laughs> <laughs> like there's there's teachings, like like these old old teachings that are taught with just the most just infectious humor like just incredibly hilarious humor and um you know sadly it doesn't often translate well from Cree to English or whatever but just just hilarious and so there's that natural humor uh, in our way of being absolutely um, but it's also a survival mechanism, you know, making things funny uh, takes the power away, you know, and, uh, and one of the examples that I like in the book is uh, the story, and I think it was, I think it was Maisie and Lucy, if I remember correctly, uh, where they're talking about the time that Sister Mary's um, habit got stuck up in her bloomers, right? Yeah. <laughs> I have a good, good chuckle about that, right? But <laughs> But yeah, and you know, the other time when uh, 
um, Lucy's just had the baby and, and Claire is asking her, like, what's up with you not asking for the baby for three months or for three hours, right? And, uh, and Lucy says, you're going to think I'm stupid. And Clara says, well, I already think you're stupid, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and how that would not be an insult between them, right? It would be something to laugh at between them, right? So, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, this book would not have been whole without humor because it's such a big part of who we are, too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it really strikes me how it's almost like how alive and real these characters are for you. They're almost like your, your babies, uh, you know? Uh, yeah. What is your relationship to these characters? Are they, how did they form for you? Well, you know, they all started with Kenny. Um, the first paragraph that I wrote in the book was about Kenny. And, and I knew immediately that I was going to need more characters because one character couldn't carry the whole weight of, all of the different types of abuses, all of the different types of responses, and one character does not create a community. And this book is also about community and the community that these kids create for each other. Um, and so then they just started coming out of the woodwork. <laughs> like like um, Lucy was a, you know, a little girl sitting in the cafeteria and so I just chose her. And, uh, but very quickly, they became really alive to me. And Clara in particular, I, I used to feel like she would intervene. I'd be writing away, right? And, and I would hear her. I'm not crazy. But I would hear her, you know, saying things like, I wouldn't say that, right? Or I wouldn't do that, right? <laughs> so it's a, it's a very interesting dynamic for sure. But they do feel like my little kids. They do. And you know, the book is finished, it's out there in the world, um, and that's fine, but they're still around. They're still around, those kids. Yeah. yeah. I, I wanted to ask you, Michelle, I understand you've got a, a number of new projects you're working on in terms of books, and also this book, Five Little Indians, is getting made into a, is it a mini-series for TV? A limited series, yeah. A limited series. Could be anywhere from maybe eight to ten episodes, where CBC very generously um, is funding the development of the, the script for a pilot. And uh, so that's what we're working on right now. I, I, I really don't know, um, you know, how long it takes to actually have this thing on the air somewhere, but I, somewhere in my mind, I think it's, it'll be a couple of years. Yeah. So that's happening. Yeah. That's I'm really very exciting. excited about that. Yes. Very. Yeah. Congratulations on that. That's really wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And then I got two books on the go. Um, one is a collection of essays, the personal essays, not research essays. And so anybody likes uh, listening to me talk about stuff we should be doing, it'll, you know, they'll find that collection easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I've got another novel cooking away. So it's kind of writing itself in my head right now. Excellent. That's excellent. And you've been, you've been on You've done hundreds of interviews, I think, for this book over the last couple of years. How, how many have you done? Well, I don't know how many I've done now, but uh, seven, like if you count 17 months from when the book was issued or published, um, um, I did 221 events. 
related to the book. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But, you know, this book is a, is a book, but it's also a platform. I get to talk about all sorts of things that are important because of this book. And I'm thankful for it, even if it wears me out. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. We have some uh, some questions starting to roll in. Um, the first the first one is from Robert, who says, "Do you have any thoughts on why First Nations resistance hasn't, in general, taken a more militant form than it has?" It has, right? Leonard Peltier is doing a life sentence, and you got to remember that you know that border is non-existent to us, and. There are many, there was, um, in the 70s, the American Indian movement um, was active in Canada. Um, and also, uh, I guess I guess the answer to that question is that when we were struggling for fishing rights and hunting rights before the law accepted that, or even created the concept of Aboriginal rights or recognized the concept of Aboriginal rights to hunting, fishing, and so on, there were violent confrontations all throughout British Columbia on the rivers and in the woods where the conservation officers were violently arresting, arresting Indian fisher people and hunters and all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, I think, uh, uh, yeah, and, you know, I think that has toned down over the years because we have been able to achieve certain things through that militancy. Um, but yeah, that it was a the seventies was a very very um, confrontational time. I remember chaining myself to Grace McCarthy's fence. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> I was working with an organization. This is just, and it was about child welfare, right? And um, and the the province's refusal to recognize our jurisdiction. Uh, for taking care of our own kids yeah now you were you would have been a young woman in the in the late 60s early 70s when this book is most of the book is set in that time what was the mood at that time it was horrible I mean I mean from the perspective of being an indigenous person I mean racism was completely unapologetic it was not something that was just under the surface it was right there in your face um, you know, it was, but it was also, you know, like if you look at the, um, if you look at the scenes of the Friendship Center, uh, in the novel and the, um, the energy of us organizing was beautiful and it was a formative thing in my life. It changed my life and, um, gave me purpose in life to, to organize and struggle you know, to achieve a better, a better situation for us in our own place of being. Um, but yeah, don't, you know, just go back, you know, Google fish wars, Google fish, fish wars. wars, British Columbia, and see what you come up with. Yeah, we had helicopters and like, Gustafson Lake, for goodness sake, okay, where the RCMP were in their paramilitary force, um, they blew up a truck, okay, um, you look right now at what's going on with the Wet'suwet'en. They're holding the line there in spite of everything. And that's not sitting around a boardroom. That's out in the winter woods, you know, trying to resist that. Oh, oh I just get so annoyed. 
<laughs> you know, the word unseated, okay? And this is something people might not know. I'm going to just run rampant here for a minute. Please Sorry. do. The floor is yours. <laughs> In uh, uh, October 7th, 1763, King George III issued a royal proclamation saying that Indigenous people were not to be molested in their territories and their lands were to be left to them um, because unless they had been sold or ceded or surrendered in some other way. So there you have King George acknowledging our right to our territories in 1763 on my birthday, October 7th, by the way. <laughs> and, uh, and still, here we are with people, you know, we give these land acknowledgements, right, where they say, you know, the unceded territory of so-and-so and so-and-so, -and -so, but there seems to be this sort of disconnect, right, when it comes to the Wet'suwet'en. That is unceded territory. But, you know, because the powers that be want the pipeline, we just won't think about that unceded part of things, right? There is a case out of the Supreme Court of Canada that said the Wet'suwet'en territory is their own. So, you know, we talk about what do you want to do? Well, you could do that. You know, you could write letters upon letters upon letters about, you know, asking our government to finally understand what unseated means. So, and to recognize it and honor it. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yes. Sorry. No, anyway. th no, please, please. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a comment from, uh, from Val, one of our, our live audience who says, First Nations are the cutting, I think it should say, it's a typo, it should say, First Nations are the cutting edge activists at Ferry Creek and Wet'suwet'en. Yeah. And have been all my memory. I am 74. Yeah, you're right, Val. You're right. Thank you. Yeah. There's another comment here from Mary. She says... Thank you for writing this book. It has brought tear. It has brought me to tears, and is a book I have been honored to share with so many friends. As a teenager, I spent time in the Pigeon Park area and ate many a meal at the Two J's, working in the area. For those who haven't read the book, those are featured in the book. I, she says, I distinctly recall seeing First Nations people sniffing glue behind Army and Navy. Is this something that you choose not to mention in your vivid descriptions of the neighborhood? No, <laughs> I, I just had other things to talk about. Right? I, you know, I, I articulated the neighborhood as best I could and um, it really wasn't, it, it actually never even came into my mind. And I spent a lot of time um, in that neighborhood because the organization that I worked for was on East Hastings. So, um, no, I don't, I, yeah, it, actually that never really occurred to me to, to incorporate that. Mm -hmm. yeah. One of the, you, you mentioned a, a couple of minutes ago, the Indian Friendship Center, which is on, in, in the book, it's on Vine Street. Yeah. Is it still there? No, it's now a condo. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, Kitsilano real estate, right? Yeah. 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 But it was, uh, it was such a, it, well, it, it's still a, it's still the same building. It's just been renoed into, um, into condos, but it was just such a beautiful old building. I, it was a great place. Yeah. And that's really close to Banyan Books. Yeah. Vine Street. We were hanging out in Banyan Books. Did right? you really? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I used to spend time there. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. That's very yeah. cool. Long time ago when I was, when my hair was black. 
Michelle, we have another question here from Jill. Jill says, to maybe generalize, what would you say are some of the unique gifts and qualities that, that characterize contemporary First Nations cultures? You mentioned a unique humor and resilience, for example. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> There's We're an all, honest answer. You know, we are unapologetically us, you know, and... I, yeah, I'm not really sure I, I understand what you're looking for with that question. Yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. she's, yeah, maybe she's referring to some of the art or, yeah, unique gifts and qualities that characterize yeah. contemporary First Nations cultures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I knew the two guys, two guys, the Wilson brothers, Barry and, and uh, Derek Wilson, and they almost single-handedly brought back the carving of in west coast style carving um i remember when i i remember when i was working they would go to all these uh uh thrift stores and salvation army and such like that looking for silver cutlery right and they would melt down the silver reform it and then they would carve the silver um into you know beautiful earrings or rings or whatever but that was something that happened at that time as well the time of the novel and um of the early parts in the novel as well was the the renaissance if you will the resurgence of our art and um you know all kinds of art um, painting art uh, carving wood uh carving silver and gold and those kinds of things and that was a really important part of that time as well and um yeah our art is pretty spectacular so yeah it is it is there's, you know, there's something I've been wanting to ask you. There's, there's a line in the book, and I'm going to paraphrase. It's uh, Kenny and Lucy are having a conversation, and and they're talking. It's when Kenny first sees an article that there's, it's I think to do with the Truth and Reconciliation. I know the line. Yeah. <laughs> you do? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's basically, she asks, "Do you think you survived?" Yeah. Do you? Yeah. They they call us survivors. I yeah. don't know if I survived or do you think you survived? Yeah. 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 And that, um, with that, um, what I was trying to communicate was who would this person have been had she not been interfered with? You know, who would all of the kids that went to residential school, who would they have been if they hadn't been kidnapped and tortured and, brutalized in the way they were um what would our communities look like now if that hadn't happened to us um would we still be these representatives of the worst statistics in the world who would we have been and that that was the thought that i was hoping to to convey in that conversation because lucy didn't think she survived lucy remembered who she was and also knew who she was now Thank you. Now, before we close, Michelle, I just want to remind everybody, we've been speaking to Michelle Good and her novel, uh, a wonderful novel, just fantastic. I really encourage everyone who hasn't already, because so many people have already read it. It's called Five Little Indians. And of course, you can get it at uh, Banyan.com or come into Banyan Books in Vancouver anytime. 
And uh, a big thanks to our live audience. It's so wonderful to have, have people here live creating these events with us. Um, and a big thank you to our podcast producer and events curator, Jacob Steele. You know, all of the, the people that we get as guests, all of the programming that Banyan has is all thanks to Jacob Steele. So thank you, Jacob, for all the hard work you do and what everything that you bring to our community. Um, Michelle, I just want to ask, do you have any, any closing thoughts or, or parting words for us before we say goodbye? Well... don't limit your involvement in this to events like this. These events should be launching off points for activism. And, and I hope that it will be. Very clear, thank you so much. Um, it's been a real honor to speak with you today. I, I'll even say a delight to speak with you today. <laughs> and Likewise. I, you know, thank you. And you know, I, I think everybody's probably excited to see to see your your new books coming out and to see the the, the show about five little Indians coming out in the next couple of years. Yeah, it should be. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. This, uh, you know, I'm really hoping that the limited series will, um, you know, will really make a difference. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.